Hello and welcome to the Methods Podcast. Uh, my name is Stuart Ekue and today I'm joined by Joy Bailey and Emily Saunderson uh, and we're here to discuss the topic of neurodiversity. Uh, this podcast was recorded on Wednesday the 29th of June 2022. A good place to start would be to just talk about um, why you were interested in discussing the topic of neurodiversity on the Methods Podcast uh, and maybe start with some personal journeys. Emily, would you like to, to introduce yourself a bit? Tell us a bit about your background, the situation at home, and a little bit about that personal journey. Hi, um, I'm Emily. I am a lead business analyst. Um, I have a pretty close connection to this topic for a variety of reasons. I share this story quite a lot with people, but at four years old, I quite brazenly declared to my parents that I was an alien. And just under 30 years later, I was diagnosed autistic. I knew from a very, very early age, I wasn't quite like my peers. And I was trying to fit in in a world that didn't quite make sense to me. And it just took a very, very long time for somebody else and professional to write it on a piece of paper that yes, that was the case. Um, but the journey to kind of get that diagnosis didn't entirely start with me. I have a mix of neurodivergence within my own family, my husband, my kids, and went through the diagnostic journey with my eldest child. Um, and the more that we went through that, the more I learned, the more I educated myself, the more I realised it wasn't just my child and it wasn't something that was unique to them it was a reflection of myself and it just seemed to fit better than other things i'd experienced i um so what does it really mean for me personally well autism is described as a social and communication difference um, and sometimes it can mean I'm very direct in what I say. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. Um, I might miss nuance or implications from other people uh, or social cues. But it also gives me an insight into things and I can see different connections and pattern recognition that others might not see in the same way. It has various sensory meanings to me. I've got um, some of my senses are very, very um, sensitive, uh, including hearing and smell and others are less sensitive, like my uh, introception, the senses of myself. Um, but I have been involved in disability advocacy and activism for a very, very long time. Um, and it's always mattered to me about creating inclusivity wherever I am, particularly now um, as a team lead, I have looked to build diversity inside my own team, neurodiversity included, um, and have people who can see things in different ways. Um, it's not always simple. It's not always easy. Um, it is classed as a disability but I don't see myself as being always held back or less than in any way. 
That's great. Thank you, Emily. Uh, Joy, would you like to explain a little bit about your background, your setup at home and, and why you wanted to come on the, the podcast and talk about neurodiversity? Thank you. And thank you, Emily. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm Joy. I'm a user researcher here at Methods. Um, my journey to diagnosis started a lot later, much like Emily's, and um, wasn't necessarily triggered in the same way. Although I do have a child who I suspect may be also neurodiverse. Um, but I have ADHD. I was diagnosed in 2021, just shortly before I left a job that I'd been in for quite a long time. Um, and for me, it it kind of came from sort of looking at how I got on in life, in the world, in work, and quite, I guess, um, I suppose unfairly comparing myself with all of my peers and thinking, wow, everything for them looks so easy. And why do I struggle with those things? And, you know, for many years, I'd, I'd kind of seen doctors and I'd had some therapy and, you know, I don't understand quite how it wasn't picked up looking back at some of the things. But um, I was always trying to get to the bottom of, you know, why do I feel anxious about that? Why do I feel depressed about this other thing? Um, and it was actually probably similar to a lot of people in the last couple of years through watching and consuming stuff on social media that I saw a lot of the traits spoken about um, in myself. So I started looking into ADHD, um, looked at the kind of diagnostic criteria, um, didn't think it would be relevant to sort of try and self-diagnose or anything like that. But when I approached my GP about it, they very quickly said, yeah, fine, yeah, I'll refer you. So I must have been on the right track and turns out I was. So, um, so for me, ADHD is... Um, I, I see it as a, a a relief almost to have the diagnosis because it kind of put a put some reasoning behind why I am like I am. And I think for a lot of people that can almost be a little bit comforting, you know, to find out that you're, you're not just disorganized or you're not lazy or all of the other preconce uh, preconceptions that come with ADHD. You know, we we may be traditionally struggle with prioritization and you know we might get frustrated about things but put things off if we don't think we can do them well enough but actually some of those things can really help us as well so when we do get into something we'll hyper focus on it and can you know really really do well at problem solving and and things like that so yeah that's the reason why I wanted to join the podcast today I think it's it's worth sharing those experiences and if anyone else thinks they're you know neuro neurodivergent then it'd be good for them to to hear other people's stories i agree and, and thanks for that joy um it sounds like uh having the diagnosis is a big part of accepting uh why you might be different than other people and that you know you both kind of said that gives you a level of comfort so Emily could we start to explore what what it is when we're talking about neurodiversity and perhaps some of the the language and the history of it 
Sure. Um, and yes, absolutely. It's it's a relief to be understood. Um, the word neurodiversity appears in print for the first time in 1998 uh, by a sociologist called Judy Singer. Um, and it's a subset of biodiversity that all brains are different and within humanity there are many many permutations of that. Um, but as a movement and as a subset of the population, uh, neurodiversity describes neurotypical brains, the kind of expected norm plus neurodivergent brains. So, and there are a whole host of different neurodivergent conditions, uh, including ADHD, autism, dyspraxia, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, sensory processing differences, Tourette's, and there are also acquired brain differences such as uh, brain injury or trauma. Um, but neurodivergence has been something that's been known about and talked about within um, psychology and psychiatry for well over 100 years um, and very much looked at the traits that people exhibit and identifying groups of people and commonality. So within the medical diagnosis model, which has carried on right up to the current day, it looks at specific paradigms and again, those traits, whether it's social awkwardness or difficulties recognizing certain characters. Um, and there are many, many myths around neurodiversity. Um, so hopefully we can challenge some of those today. The neurodiverse population is about one in eight. So whilst autism may be less than 2%, you're talking a huge number of the world uh, fall into one of these uh, neurodivergence categories. Um, and it can be quite a difficult experience when you don't know, and often children are labelled as not trying hard enough or not applying themselves, uh, not able to fit in and show behavioural difficulties because the world is hard and the world is difficult. Um, the medical paradigm seems to usually focus around um, a particular demographic, usually male and young, um, when the most up-to-date research says that it could be anybody and um, everybody. There isn't a specific demographic that is more likely to be neurodivergent. Thanks, Emily. That that one in eight stats quite a, a powerful figure when you think about you know the number of people that you engage with in terms of your family members. Um, you know, as business consultants within methods, the number of customers we speak to on a day to day basis. Um, so I hadn't come across that one in eight figure before, and it. it certainly gives you an opportunity to sit back and think, oh, hang on, that, that could also be me. Um, yep. and, and thinking about, you know, what, what that means to you or, or perhaps a previous interaction with someone that hasn't go quite as you expected uh, and perhaps thinking about the considerations or change in approach. Um, I know in some of the documentation that's been produced recently, we've been using some of the accessibility checks um, that's available in, in Microsoft to try and make sure that 
um, the materials we're producing are accessible to anyone that it's it's sent to. Um, Joy, would you like to talk to us, seeing as we're talking about uh, the workplace there, uh, would you like to talk to us a little bit about what some of the positives can be being neurodiverse in the workplace? Yeah, sure, definitely. Um, I think that um, I'll preface this with these these things, I think, are positives if you approach them all across the board. So um, for certain, um, certain, certain conditions, uh there are things like thinking outside the box and lateral thinking and that kind of different ways of problem solving especially in things like dyslexia or dyspraxia and adhd um if you need people who are creative and going to think of different ways of solving problems that neurotypical people might not consider then you know they're kind of ideal for that kind of just that sort of job that it's it's known now that people on the autistic spectrum have very good attention to detail and they also may have alternative approaches to solving problems and and you know really strong processes and and following through with those processes uh in a way that people with adhd probably would not so if you have a neurodivergent team where you have people with different conditions and different um, strengths. Those people are going to work well together to get things done in a way that a neurotypical team may not. You know, you're going to potentially have work done maybe more quickly, or maybe in a different a different way that you wouldn't have expected, and you may even get better outcomes or different outcomes that that you weren't um, you weren't expecting to get. And if you apply that uh, that sort of you know, looking at people's strengths and trying to draw on those strengths in their roles um, and making sure that they are working on projects or doing work that utilises those strengths to the full potential. If you apply that to everyone, everyone in your company, you're going to get the best from them. So I think some of the some of the things that we do to make the workplace more accessible to people who are neurodivergent or people with disabilities those things do, um, they do pay off for everyone at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I think that it's it's important that we we look at those strengths and not just the kind of challenges or perceived weaknesses of um, neurodiverse people. Thanks, Joy. It's interesting to hear you talk about it as a strength, as a positive in the workplace, um, that you've got that different way of thinking, that different approach. So, you know, you could uh, at methods. We deal a lot with digital transformations and people can just go into the standard. Right. Well, this is how we're going to redesign this or change that. But actually having that, you know, that opportunity for someone who is neurodiverse and in that workspace to just be able to contribute in a positive way with a oh, what's the different spin on it? You know, are people going to recognise an icon better or some words better? What's so, the what's the best approach? Yeah, there's also the um, there's also the sort of thinking on the spot and being a being up against tight deadlines. I, obviously, easy for me to speak about ADHD, being that that's my um, I was going to say problem, but that's my condition. But um, things that may really trip up someone who doesn't think in that way to some with ADHD, that's where we perform best. So, you know, give me a deadline, 
give me a novel problem to solve and tell me I've got five minutes to do it and you're probably going to get a really good solution but on the flip side give me three months to work on a small piece of work um, and it's probably not going to get done until the very last five minutes although if you gave that problem to Emily it would probably be solved and approached in a very different way but you may get the same outcome. So thinking about um, being in the workplace then Emily would you like to talk us about how we can make adjustments in the workplace, how we can be supported by the law uh, and, and support neurodiverse employees on a on a day to day basis to get the best from them and give them the best kind of support? Absolutely. So neurodivergent conditions are recognised under the disability element of the Equalities Act and therefore are protected characteristic. So discrimination against us is 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 not okay um although something is happening within employment at the moment there is a particular movement to in, to increase the number of neurodivergent employees but simultaneously there's also been a 30% rise in employment tribunal cases based on disability discrimination for neurodivergent individuals. So as an organisation, it's important to not just support employees, but be very conscious that discrimination uh, can go in a really bad direction. So we shouldn't be doing it um, and should be mindful that there's support available to work through how an individual needs to make things different to get the best out of your team and your um, colleagues um, and it's currently being worked on uh, with HR about use, using a workplace adjustment passport which is um, an initiative that kicked off in the civil service helping support line managers speak to uh, their line reports to identify what works for you, what helps you, what does a good day look like, what does a bad day look like, and what can we do to make your working life as comfortable as possible so that everybody has a good day, because if you have a good day, you do good work. Um, so we're protected by law, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to understand and I do urge anyone who hears this to reach out and say I think I've got a problem can you help and there's help out there and support it isn't just about diagnosis it's about day-to-day -day operating within good team. How, how widely do you think that's known do you find yourself having to start from you know scratch every time and explain things from the beginning to either your managers or your staff about you know uh, what protection there is in place and what support there is in place yes so in general people's awareness only comes from some kind of experience uh, whether it's somebody you've met somebody in your family a run-in you've had that could have been a negative experience uh, or somebody disclosing to you, um, hopefully with a positive experience, it isn't something that there's necessarily as widespread awareness and education as much as there could be or should be. Um, and it goes back to that figure one in eight, well, why don't more people know? <laughs> um, because historically, 
there's been huge bias against any kind of disability hidden or physical um, and seen and employment figures are often therefore very very low uh, around 29 percent of the UK's autistic population are in any kind of employment whatsoever that's not just full-time employment. Joy does that resonate with you do you find that similar kind of experience in the workplace? Yeah what I was going to say was um, the I think part of the issue that that the workplace has and people who are neurodiverse have with entering the workplace is that stereotype of um, particular conditions. So you may not want to disclose that you have a, a condition at the point of applying for a job. You might think that it's going to um, put you at some sort of not at risk, can't think of the word, but it's going to put you at a dis maybe someone else can help me with this word because it's gone from my brain disadvantage there it is um you know having those stereotypes like ADHD being naughty um hyperactive disruptive people forgetful unorganized talkative why would you want someone like that in your team or why would you want to employ someone like that you know what risk are you taking by employing that person um but these are all stereotypes so I think the more we educate um, employees, employers, and you know the general population of what neurodiversity really means, then the better. You know, it's got to it's got to be talked about, it's got to be publicised. It's got to be you've got to see more of those sort of success stories, or even just success from from the aspect of people getting on in life and you know being all right. Not they don't have to be the next Steve Jobs, but you know, can they do what they need to do to get by and be happy? Um, and I think those making those accommodations and adjustments so people can get into the workplace and do what they need to do is a step towards that. And people's fears of disclosure are they're real, they're absolutely real. There was a survey carried out a couple of years ago by the Institute of Leadership and Management, which revealed half of UK employers who filled out this survey admit that they would not employ someone who had one or more neurodivergent condition, half. So that varied between each condition, but that's a big deal. If you know that being honest about who you are means you are not going to get a job, you're less likely to be honest about who you are. And that's probably going to show when you get round to interview, which will affect how you come across in an interview and then the problem compounds. Um, so there's an onus on every organisation, but even us, for those of us who are hiring managers, to be acutely aware within that hiring process to challenge our own internal bias and create an atmosphere within interview that lets people show who they really are, because that's the person you're going to get when you employ. And if you can see somebody's potential, then you can work with their needs and build the, the successes that you need from that person. I think you probably also need to take into account that the application process can, can be a big um, part of that. So when you're applying for a job, if you see that part of the application 
is um, disclosing the information in a way that is being perceived as not to your disadvantage. So um, I know from many applications that I've done, some some employers will, will ask within their application, do you need any accommodations? Is there anything for the interview that you know we need to set up to facilitate the interview for you? And you are free then to disclose um, what they might be and why you might need those and framing it in that way that is, you know, facilitating and wanting to invite you into to interview and make it work, I think can be really beneficial. Whereas on the flip side, if nothing's mentioned at all, you're already then thinking, OK, if they're not putting it up on the on the, the description or the application, then at what point do I disclose this information? And if I disclose it too late, what what are they going to what are they going to say? Are they going to withdraw their offer? Are they going to? Is it safe? Yeah. Is it safe exactly, to yeah. disclose? Will I be wanted? Will I not be wanted? Um, and I know that in the people who I want to employ, I want to build trust. I want to know who somebody is. I want to know if they're struggling, but I really want them to do well. And I want them to be able to talk to me about their needs. Um, and asking that opening question, are there adjustments that we can make for you, is a great opener. It's not the only one, but it's on us to create that safe space. So we get who, who, we get who we're presented with. I think as well with those um <clears throat> with those adjustments, carrying those on through to actually being in the workplace and doing your job, there are certain there are certain things and certain adjustments that they're going to benefit not just the neurodiverse colleagues, but but also the neurotypical. And I don't I don't see that there should be any different different differences between um being able to request adjustments because certain things that would help me get on better with my job and perform better and do better, I think would probably benefit a lot of other people, regardless of whether they are neurodiverse or neurotypical, even you know, really simple things, you know, putting an agenda in that's got clear expectations before a meeting and explicit task led goals for project work and all these things that just make it easier for a job to get done and expectations to be met they're they're not going to they're not going to cause any um negative effects are they it's like when you design uh websites and forms and things and you you design to make them accessible for everyone it it's the same sort of thing make the workplace accessible for everyone everyone's going to do better it's what by when is is a quite snappy little approach. What we after, when do we need to do it? Everybody knows, everybody can see, everybody can agree. Yeah. And I think it doesn't hurt step, anyone. Exactly. And I think even a step further sometimes with that. So what by when, but also to to what to what level of fidelity. So if someone said to me, um, if you could just uh pull together some information about this thing. Okay, well, that's quite broad. So for me, wanting to um, always over, over sort of 
like prove myself and over overcompensate for my own perceived uh dis like disadvantages or whatever um i would probably put together something that is way more than what is required but then i've set a precedent for oh if someone asks me to do that i'm gonna have to perform at that level whereas actually what they might have wanted is just a document with some bullet points of here's where we are so having that um that extra bit of clarity of yeah what by when and what else is expected from that makes it even easier and saves people time as well because you know, if you ended up spending an hour on something that could have taken 10 minutes better productivity that way around isn't it i think a, a lot of neurotypical people could learn from those rules as well and help help them be more effective too um i wondered if there were you had any reflections on uh any kind of uh bias or or difference in approaches if you're uh, a female compared to being a male being diverse you know being diagnosed uh emily i know you've got a a lot of a lot of characters in your house have you got any reflections on that so it's it's interesting because how particularly autistic traits are have been different between genders is something that has only fairly recently been talked about However, personally, I'm not a fan of gendering traits because if you were to work backwards, uh, assigning each trait to a gender, you probably wouldn't come back from how I exhibit my autistic traits to who I am and how I look. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it comes from that original paradigm um, and the diagnostic criteria can often be very, very narrow, um, but people aren't. <laughs> uh, we we display all kinds of things differently based on not just our gender, but who we are and our life experience and our communities and socioeconomic differences. That being said, my experience of having two children of different genders and going through the diagnostic pathway, there's more of a fight for girls. It's more of a, but look at this, but look at this, but the, and girls tend to hide who they are more and try and fit in more and often, and this is not saying that boys don't do this, and this is very much an overgeneralization, but girls tend to do more of what is called masking, which is acting the part of a neurotypical peer. Um, boys do this too, I say, but it, it tends to be more girls and it's exhausting and it's something that I have to do in order to bring my best self to work. Um, and it's tiring, it's anxiety producing because you're constantly worried about am I presenting myself in the way in which other people need me to be presented to be acceptable to them and when somebody learns to do this and they are not yet diagnosed if you go masking in front of your assessor and they're not attuned to it then that diagnostic assessment isn't going to be accurate and that is the uphill struggle, which tends to affect more women. And 
because historically a lot of the diagnostic traits were all focused around young boys, it's only a fairly recent thing that many adult women are now chasing or have recently received, like us, diagnosis. Um, to quote my own mum, when looking back on my upbringing, she said to me, we didn't know girls were autistic. We didn't think it happened to girls. Um, and that that was what it was like in the 80s and the 90s. It just wasn't wasn't known, wasn't believed, wasn't understood. And so those opportunities for me personally to be diagnosed were missed or I was diagnosed with something else incorrectly because it didn't even occur to any of those trained experts that it could be that. That's still very, very common. There's a lot of um there's a lot of things in there as well that um that resonated with me when you're talking about that diagnosis process. Um so for for my diagnosis I had to not only kind of sit down and interview with a psychiatrist, but I had to collect a lot of evidence, which is um for someone with ADHD kind of almost comical because you don't want to have to do something that is a big long complicated task with lots of steps anyway so it almost felt like a test um so they ask for your school reports but also for like almost like character references so they give you sheets of paper to hand out to someone you know someone you live with um and what's funny is that things like ADHD are and can be often hereditary so when I tried to give these sheets to my mum for example she started reading through them and she's like well you don't struggle with everyone have these problems you don't struggle with these things and I'm thinking it's funny you say that mum because actually if I went through this list and tried to score you on it you probably score higher than me you probably are you probably have ADHD as well and then um you know the perception of uh of, of me from outside people probably because I've spent most of my life masking and trying to keep up with stuff, is that if I were to ask other people to fill those in for me, they would, they'd be like, no, you're fine. You, you, you don't seem to struggle with these things. But as you say, that masking is, is exhausting and you, you get so used to doing it, you don't realise you're doing it. And it's all, it's all kind of, you're trying to keep up, keep up appearances, I guess, and save face. Um, and for me, that's, you know, trying to appear on the surface like you've got it all together, you're organised, you're, you're, you're going to turn up on time or even overcompensate and get things done, be more put together than you think you need to be, just so people don't find out. And it's this huge effort all the time, because what if you get found out that you're a fraud or you're failing underneath all that? Um, and what happens is that constant, constant effort of, of masking to everyone um, leads to burnout. And I don't know if either of you have ever experienced burnout because, you know, it can happen to anyone. But personally, for me, that was like it was almost like a cycle. Every few years, there'd be some sort of catastrophic thing that would come in and I'd be like, oh, God, why this happened again? You know, everything would all fall apart. And I just couldn't figure out why. But I think, yeah, when you say that girls kind of get more used to masking, I know it's a generalisation, but I think it does certainly feel like there's, there's some truth in that. 
But I think that, that comes back to some of the point around being more open about the fact that, you know, neurodiverse people, you know, are 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 there and are part of our colleagues and our workforces and our customers. And if we're more aware of it, we might pick up on the cues. And uh, you know, if even if it's just a little bit of knowledge, you know, so I, I came into this, you know, not knowing an awful lot about neurodiversity. So it's been really great for me to be able to to talk to you both about this subject and and learn more um and start to incorporate you know more of that approach in some of the work that we do um just one final question before we wrap up so we've been working uh remotely with our our colleagues the last two and a half years we've been wor working remotely with our customers for the last two and a half years do you think that plays to the strength so we talked about neurodiversity as a strength earlier do you think that working remotely with a balance of seeing face to face as well plays to the strength of someone who's neurodiverse it can do and i think it was my own preconceptions several years ago where i would have gone yes definitely as a as a first answer but i'm learning more and more that even within a specific neurodivergent community like the autistic community it isn't one way is best for everybody I personally love being in the office, love seeing clients face to face, get a lot of value out of that. And for business analysis, we often put face to face workshops at the top of our agenda. But it is exhausting for me as well. And I can pick up on different things when I am interacting over the phone and hearing changes in somebody's voice or on teams where I can see people in their own more comfortable environment. And I know that for myself and my sensory processing needs, I can be more physically comfortable in my own home, which means it's often easier for me to concentrate on getting the work done. And it's been interesting because I worked remotely for a long time before the pandemic uh, and saw a lot of people kind of joining my view of the world. But since being in methods, I've chosen to spend more time in the office than I had done for years and really enjoy it. There's diversity within diversity and everything has its own benefits. Recognising that face to face time might be difficult for a neurodivergent individual is something that we can respond quite easily to because we've got the options to do so and meeting you put it putting on my mask in order to meet meet my clients is not not a bad thing and not something I, I want to shy away from but other people might have to and it's it's important to be sensitive to engaging everyone but if we go back to what Joy said about setting those expectations and setting clear agendas and knowing what people are trying to achieve by any particular session, that's going to have value face to face, online or any combination of the above. I think to echo what Emily said, there's no there's no sort of one approach. There's no right or wrong way of um, of working and you know holding workshops or getting things done but I think that the most important thing is just flexibility so if you can if you can do something that's hybrid and do it well then you're going to get the best out of people sometimes 
that can be a bit of a challenge to get you know tech things set up right or find out discover different ways of making it work but you know we've we've done it we've done it um a few times there's been incredibly productive workshops where the people who want to be in the room everyone who needs to be in the room is is there somehow but the people who want to be there in person for whatever reason are able to be so and those who want to be there remotely or need to be there remotely for whatever reason are able to do so and still have that same um level of engagement and uh are able to get their their points in and and contribute in the way that they are most comfortable to do so and the reason i say the the flexibility is important there's there's going to be days where someone who would ordinarily want to be in the office and come in in person is not going to be able to because for whatever reason they're not having a good day something's you know they can't put the mask on that day or whatever um so just having that flexibility makes it better for everyone and and that's a positive i think again for not just people who are neurodiverse but i'll go back to it again i think it is positive for everyone and even to the extent of the people who need different working patterns or people who have other commitments or people who have physical disabilities that can't necessarily get in to the office or you know need different setup and accommodations to get things done i think having that flexibility just works for everyone um yeah Thank you both. Um, I've really enjoyed the kind of enthusiasm uh, and the fact that you volunteered to, to talk about this subject. Um, it's obviously something you're both really, really passionate about. Um, if there's anyone listening who would like to know a little bit more or needs a bit of signposting, what might you recommend they have a look at initially? Uh, Emily, I don't know if there's anything that immediately springs to mind. So as Joy mentioned, social media is a great resource to be able to find the communities of people that you resonate with and understand people's experiences because there's nothing like um, getting it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, if you are one of our methods colleagues, I'm very, very happy for um, you to send me a message on Teams or Slack to talk through. If you are a parent or carer of somebody and you want to know how the system works again something that I've experienced and I'm very happy to give some of my time to support and if you're struggling in our workplace speak to your line manager contact HR but reach out to somebody because you know I can only speak for myself I'm happy to talk to anybody about this and at length um, but a problem shared is a problem halved not yeah. that any of us are a problem. <laughs> oh, but the problem is you might be experiencing. Um, I, I think it's worth remembering as well that sometimes it can feel daunting to put yourself out there and speak to HR or your line manager, for example. So having those conversations with people who are not those authority figures or perceived as those authority figures, you know, or if you're not lucky enough to have a brilliant relationship with your line manager or, or you just need that more informal conversation um yeah same as emily i'm happy to to speak with anyone about anything like that, that they're going through but those um those communities and social media they there are so many people who are willing to share stories and can give you tips and um help with the 
understanding some of the the criteria and the diagnostic processes and what's involved and even just suggesting accommodations that you can try um that that don't require a huge effort um you know things like noise cancelling headphones and earplugs and automations and stuff anyone can do those things and not need to have them approved in some sort of um accommodations system so do please reach out if you think it's something you'd like to discuss Thank you both. It's really nice to hear that you're, you know, you're not just been uh, wanting to come on the podcast and talk about this, but you're willing to talk about anyone else that needs some help as well. So, thank you very much, both of you, for for coming and talking to us about that. Um, I've learned uh, quite a lot there, um, and and the signposting really helps as well if people are interested in in you know either getting some help or learning a little bit more about what neurodiversity means and what they can do about it. So, thank you very much for coming and talking to us and we'll end it there i think thank you very much thank, thank you, you.